WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions from God's word. If there's a passage you're studying that you're challenged by or an issue you're facing in your life that you'd like biblical counsel on or maybe just uh, some some biblical counsel as it relates to your ministry. Uh, Give us a call. We're happy to respond. You can also email us. The email address is tbl for the Bible line at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, and the local number again is 843-525-1859. Our toll-free number is 877, the call letters, WAGP980. And when you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We're happy to receive it however you give it to us. Well, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll jump in and we'll get started this morning. All right. We've got a number of questions that have come in. Um, Last week on Perry Noble's Facebook page, David from Columbia writes that uh, he had given six reasons why a woman could be a pastor, justifying a young lady who had preached in his church on November 1st. And David would like you to comment and would also like to know whether Perry Noble's evaluation should be trusted. Okay, well, let's see. Uh, I have the link here in front of me. So let me just kind of skim through here his arguments. And uh, no, I I wouldn't trust much of what Perry Noble says. Uh, I think he's a novice. I don't think he's qualified to be a pastor. He's uh, distorted in the past a number of texts of Scripture. And no doubt uh, he's done this again. And that's not a healthy thing when that kind of thing happens. So um, let me just start by first he argues that women were commissioned by Jesus at the resurrection to preach. Well, uh, that's a little bit of a stretch. Uh, In Matthew 28, if you remember, one of the uh, great resurrection chapters in the New Testament, uh, the Lord has an encounter. Of course, the very first person he appears to in his resurrected body is a woman Christ esteemed women, gave them a high and holy place in the kingdom. They just have different roles. Men and women are equal, but we do have different roles. So Jesus said to them, to the women who had fallen at his feet and worshiped him. And by the way, when Mormons tell you that they believe the same thing we believe about Jesus, uh, you can just simply ask them. You can ask the same of a Jehovah's Witness. Do you worship Jesus? Do you worship him? And of course, uh, the Bible says you shall worship the Lord thy God and him only. And if they're honest, they'll say, well, no. And then you can say, then you don't really believe the same thing that we believe about Christ. In the New Testament, people worship Christ. He doesn't tear his robes 
like Peter did on one instance and the Apostle Paul on another. Barnabas, no, he received that worship. In fact, when you come to the revelation, all of heaven is worshiping him. Why? Because he's more than just a man. He's God in human flesh. And it says they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they shall see me. Now to say that that is uh, Jesus commissioning them to go and preach is just ridiculous. Uh, that's the Lord telling them to go and share what they've seen. That's, that's a testimony. A woman can give a testimony in church and in other places where there is a mixed audience. That's not a violation of scripture. Uh, that is uh, sharing a testimony. That is far different from opening the Bible and expounding verse by verse what God says. All right. His uh, second reason here on his uh, blog, I guess you'd call it, is that uh, women preached in Acts chapter 2. Uh, and he quotes Acts 2, 1 to 4. Um, I don't think so. Uh, what took place on the day of Pentecost was indeed a miracle. Uh, God had promised uh, that Messiah, um, after he ascended into heaven, in fulfillment of the new covenant that you find in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that he would send the Holy Spirit. And so if you remember in Acts 1, just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, don't go, don't preach, don't uh, do anything, same thing you read in Luke 24, until God the Holy Spirit comes. Because he's the one who's going to give you the authority, the power, the boldness, the compassion, the grace to do what I've called you to do. And of course, uh, 10 days later, in fulfillment of uh, the promise he made on Pentecost. And by the way, it's not by accident that the Spirit of God came on Pentecost. There are seven feasts in the Old Testament for that were fulfilled in the first coming of the Messiah. It's not by accident that Jesus died on Passover. Uh, Passover, the Passover lamb, Christ, our Passover, Paul will say, has been sacrificed for us. Uh, he was buried, the sinless son of God, on the, uh, the day of unleavened bread, the first day of unleavened bread, and he was raised from the dead on Sunday, which was first fruits. He was the first one ever to come out of the body uh, to come out of the grave in a resurrected body. Others had been raised to life. He was the first ever to be resurrected from the dead. He's the first fruits. And then 50 days later, he walked on the earth for 40 days, ascended into heaven. Then 10 days later on the 50th day, which was the final day of uh, the feast of first fruits, what we call Pentecost, uh, then, or the Feast of Weeks, then the Spirit of God came on that 50th day. So these, these uh, fulfillments are not by accident. There's still three more feasts as they relate to the people of Israel that God is going to fulfill uh, yet, and those will be fulfilled during the time of the Great Tribulation after the church has been raptured. So here in Acts 2, um, on the day of Pentecost, when they had come all together, there suddenly came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them, and included in the them, was 120 men and women, as the prior chapter clearly delineates. And again, this is the basis he's using now for the commissioning of women preachers. There appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. 
that again is no different from a woman prophesying. When Paul speaks of a woman woman prophesying in first Corinthians 11 and again in first Corinthians 14, he gives specific instruction as to how that should unfold, how that should happen. And clearly uh, a woman prophesying is not the same as a woman opening the Bible and expounding it, explaining it in a mixed audience with men and women. So what these women did in the upper room and as they spilled out into the streets and there were thousands of people present, we know that because thousands were converted, was not a woman preaching. It would be no different today than a woman prophesying in the first first Corinthians 14. Remember, in first Corinthians, Paul deals with this issue of prophesying and we're, we are to test the spirits to see if they be from God. And it was during a time when the Bible was not yet completed. The canon of scripture was not done. And so God made men and women alike direct conduits of revelation where they would literally speak the word of God. Today it would be no different from someone reading scripture. And that was one of the functions of tongues. It was a, a direct revelation from God. It was in a real language, not the kind of ecstatic utterances that go back to the second century BC and were prevalent in the first century in a number of cultic groups. No, the miracle of tongues as you read of it, and this is the only chapter, by the way, in all the Bible where the nature is specifically described. They were real languages. He uses the word glossolalia, and they were dialects within the language. He uses the Greek word dialectos. So they spoke a real language in a particular dialect, and 15 such are given and listed in this chapter. But what they did was not a commissioning for a woman to be a pastor. It was like a woman today reading scripture in church, and there's no violation in a woman doing that. Um, next, he quotes uh, De- Deborah as an example of a woman preacher. By the way, I did a sermon not that long ago um, in this calendar year, and I, actually I did two on 1 Timothy 2.11 and then on 1 Timothy 2.12 through 15. And I go through all the passages in the Bible that people use to justify women pastors. In fact, I go through, he doesn't mention Miriam, but Miriam is given a single word of prophecy, not to men, but to women in Exodus chapter 15. And then I go through Huldah in 2 Kings. And, uh, but I also go through Deborah here in uh, the book of Judges. So let me just turn there. And in Judges chapter four, it says, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Jabadoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom, and um, he, she said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. And I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and so forth. And so um, God gives Deborah a direct word of prophecy. And so she's called a prophetess. Uh, remember again, at this point, the Torah was finished. Uh, the book of Joshua had been written beyond that. There was no scripture except possibly the book of Job had been done. Job had been done, uh, cause that goes all the way back, of course, to the time of, uh, 
to Abraham. That's when Job lived. And a number of Psalms had been been done at this point. But for the most part, uh, there was very little Old Testament, comparatively speaking. So God, again, was speaking through prophets and prophetesses. And it would be no different than reading scripture. And of course, um, when she speaks to this man, and by the way, he is the one who's highlighted in the book of Hebrews. He gets credit for it because he responds in faith. He, of course, wants Deborah to go with him uh, into the battle. Uh, I don't think so much as a good luck charm, but more from the fact that she recogni- he recognizes that she's a, she's a woman of God. She's one that uh, can be appreciated, and God is working through her. But she doesn't. She sends him, and he goes in faith. And it's really an act of faith because uh, Sisera has 900 chariots. Uh, even the king of uh, Egypt, the pharaoh, only had 600 chariots. So, so this is an extraordinary army with an extraordinary number of people, uh, comparatively speaking to the soldiers he takes from the two tribes of Israel. Yet he goes in faith because he believes what God says. She doesn't lead. He does. All she does is speak a word. Remember, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so he responds in faith to a word from God and the word comes from Deborah. So God could speak scripture directly through women. That is far different from a woman taking the Torah at this time and saying, well, here's what Moses said. Let me explain to you what he meant. No, she never does that. Uh, No women ever do that in the scripture to a mixed audience. Uh, He notes that Esther has a book written by her. That must make her a preacher. That's ridiculous. Just, I'm not even going to comment on it. It is so silly. Uh, He next mentions here, Acts chapter 21 uh, with the, uh, the daughters of Philip. And that's often a, a question. What about the four daughter, daughters of Philip? Well, let me read Acts 21.9. It says, now this man, meaning Philip, had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Actually, uh, the, the King James is a little more accurate here. It says, which did prophesy? In the NASB, it comes through like a, a noun, but it's actually a participle in Greek. And I think the ESV pictures picks it up in that way. She had, he had four unmarried daughters, I think it says, who prophesied. It's a verbal. And so it's indicating action. At some time, in some place, these women prophesied. We don't know if they prophesied in unison, like a quartet or, or uh, one at a time, but it was some unique instance, like Miriam, like Huldah, like Deborah, who, who prophesied, who spoke a word from God. And again, that would be no different from a woman today reading scripture. We know it's comparable to speak to scripture because of what's recorded, not to mention the fact that like with Deborah, uh, there's new Testament commentary that he responded in faith. And in every illustration, there's approximately 40 in Hebrews 11. Each illustration of faith God gives is in response to a word from God. So these women had a word from God. Uh, That is far different from a woman preaching and expounding the word of God, which is prohibited because Paul specifically says a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. And then the last text he references here is Romans 16. Oh, I see. Actually, he references one more from Deuteronomy. Um, 
And his point here is that you um, have a, a law that we don't no, no longer apply. Well, it is true. There are some passages in the Old Testament that we don't apply today because we distinguish between the ceremonial law and the moral law of God. And a wise expositor of Scripture uh, would do that. But there are many passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that have just as much application in the day that they were written as in the day that uh, Moses penned them. The next, the next verse deals with false weights. That's dishonesty. That still has as much application in our day as it did in Moses's day. Uh, there's no difference there. Um, you know, in, in he, he makes a point here too, just flipping through his blog that uh, Paul only mentions uh or brings up this subject, he says, about five times. I would debate that number right off, but let's just assume his number is accurate, and it's not. Um, The fact is, is God only has to say something once for it to be true. Uh, God only in the Torah speaks against bestiality, a man being intimate with an animal. It's repeated nowhere in the New Testament. But I can tell you it has just as much application today as it did the day it was penned. When God gives the uh, laws of marriage and, you know, he teaches that a man shouldn't marry his, say, first cousin or his sister. That still has as much application today as the day in which it was penned. Uh, those are part of the moral law of God and part of uh, a pastor's responsibilities. He's not to be a novice in the scripture He has to be sound in faith. It's one of the requirements for an elder, for a pastor. And that's not something, unfortunately, that's true. Perry Noble, every time I hear him preach, and I've not heard him a lot, but people have sent me, you know, links and so forth. I think, oh, no, that's an error. No, that's right. No, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. Oh, that that point is right. That one's wrong. It's just filled with error. But, again, he's an issue today because he has the uh, largest church in South Carolina and one of the largest churches in the nation, but he's watered down the word of God. He's misrepresented God's word. He's a novice. He's unqualified and he may end up in the end coming out as a false prophet. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, So I'm very much concerned and I meet people all the time who come from that church who sometimes move to Beaufort and they've been baptized and it becomes obvious to me they're not even saved. They don't even know what the gospel is. And I think, well, why did they baptize you? Well, they were baptizing a thousand people that day, and I thought I would get baptized too. Well, they shouldn't have. Uh, Part of a pastor's responsibility is to discern whether or not someone is a believer. And you can only, of course, go by what they say. And so obviously there will be pastors, myself included, who will baptize someone who has all the right words but is not truly legitimately born again. And Jesus, of course, said there would be people like this in the church. The wheat and the tare would be mixed together until the time of the harvest. The parable of the sower, he describes people who um, believe for a while. Uh, They receive the word with joy, but in time of testing, they they fall away. So there will be some people who will make, quote unquote, a decision, but it won't be really a life changing decision. It will be an emotional experience. They receive it with joy. It will be intellectual. They'll be able to articulate the plan of salvation, but it won't be real. 
But if someone can't even articulate the plan of salvation, you ask them, well, what do you think you have to do to get into heaven? Well, you know, you be a good person and you try hard and you get baptized like one woman told me in the foyer of our church a few months ago who just come from Perry Noble's church and he had baptized her or one of his pastors did. I'm sure he didn't because they were baptizing. She said like a thousand people that day, you know, well, what's going on? Well, she obviously was lost. And so when you see a pattern like that, it makes you really question like, Hey, who's on first? What's going on? So, um, the question that's come in here, it's, you know, again, I could spend more time on it, but what I would direct you to do would be to go to search the scriptures.org. Listen to two sermons I preached in, in May of this year. One is if you go on the first Timothy tab, go to first Timothy two eleven. That's the first sermon. And in that sermon, I go through all the different uh, passages that people use to say that women can be pastors, both Old and New Testament. And then in the second sermon, 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 15, I go through what Paul actually prohibits in terms of a woman not being a pastor and what he commends that a woman can do. And sometimes we talk about what a woman doesn't do but we don't affirm enough the high and holy calling that God has given her in the bearing and the nurturing and the discipling of children, because she plays a principal role in building leadership for the next church uh, generation. Uh, Who are the future pastors who are being shaped? Many of them are coming out of godly homes who are being nurtured under the care of godly mothers. And that's very, very, very important. Not to mention the women and the, the girls that are being raised up in their home to uh, to give leadership to women in the church. All right. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, good morning, Pastor Carl. Good morning, Rick. Hey, this good morning. Hey, good morning. Nice to hear your voice. How's it going? Yeah, same namesake, but not yes. as, as smart as you are. <laughs> <laughs> What's on your um, mind, brother? I... um. I'm, this series with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, maybe you might have went through it, but I might have missed it. Um, why was the uh, God really concerned about it? There have been evil kings in the in the past. Why was he really concerned about Nebuchadnezzar uh, so much that he had to try to rebuke him and, um, you know, turn him around? And did, is Nebuchadnezzar now in heaven? And I'll hang up and listen. It's a great question. So certainly there are other evil despots and the question becomes, does God love everybody? And of course the love of God is really paralleled and described in a couple of different ways in the Bible. Uh, There's a sense in which he, he loves the whole world equally believer and unbeliever alike in their lost state. Even those whom God in his omniscience know will come to, to faith So when the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, uh, the world there means world. I know people today, some of my five point Calvinist friends, you know, do some mental gymnastics with the word world. Uh, And so when they meet unbelievers because they believe that the atonement is only for a particular group of people, namely the elect, that it was limited And of course, it's not that would totally discount Paul's argument in Romans five, where he can make a parallel that between one act, Adam, there was a result on the whole human race. Even so, through one act, 
Christ, there was a result on the whole human race and that there was a provision made. Now he specifies that the provision is only good for those who respond to the provision. And there are tons and tons of passages like this all the way uh, through the Bible. Paul, when he writes uh, to Titus uh, in that pastoral epistle in Titus chapter two, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So the atonement is for all men. Jesus made a provision for all people. But then the next verse says, instructing us to deny ungodliness. While the provision is for all men, it only changes us, Paul, and the believers whom he is including as he writes this letter. So it instructs us, those who've received that provision. And unfortunately, there are some who confuse passages that deal with the intent of the atonement with the extent of the atonement. Certainly the Lord had in mind, uh, no doubt, those who would respond, not those who would spurn him, but but he loved and made a provision for all. So when I witness to unsaved people, I don't have to couch my words in great specificity saying, well, you know, God loves those who will repent and believe. But that's what my five point friends do. They can't say, well, God loves you because in their theology, they don't know if God really loves that person unless he truly believes. I don't have to play that game. Uh, And when I go to other parts of the world, I was in India just a few weeks ago, and uh, occasionally these questions come up, and and people in other parts of the world, they can't even believe that this is an issue. And of course, true, a lot of them have not had the um, knowledge of church history because Christianity is so new. You go to a place like India where only about 1% of the people Uh, No Christ is Savior. So it's a very, very small portion of the population. But God's at work there. We saw some 800 people come to Christ when we were there just a few weeks ago. So God is working and doing marvelous things there. But nonetheless, um, they can't even believe, well, how could anybody even get that out of the Bible? So they're asking questions like, well, how 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 did John Calvin hold to that? Of course, I remind them that John Calvin didn't hold to that, that some of Calvin's followers were more Calvinist than John Calvin himself were, but they can't figure that out. And and I tell them, look, don't try to figure it out. You have to be educated into that position. It doesn't come from the plain reading of scripture. Uh, Someone has to convince you of that. So um, when we think of God's love for people, it's worldwide. It's for everyone. Uh, Though God does have a special affection on those who believe they're called his beloved. So when the Bible says that God is willing that none should perish, does he really mean none? Yes, he does. Um, When he says he desires all men to be saved, does he really mean all men or just all kinds of men? No, he, he means all men. Now, will all men be saved? Clearly not. God is clear that not all men will be saved. In fact, Jesus said, for the most part, most people are on the broad road that lead to destruction. But that doesn't mean that God in his heart of hearts doesn't love and care for these people. Indeed, he does. He has a deep affection on them. Again, because Christ died for all men. Uh, Peter speaks to the fact that false prophets will arise among the people, just as there will also be false prophets among you. I, I read that wrong. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you. So he's saying, look, in the past, there are false prophets, what today we'd call the old covenant age, just as today there'll be false prophets who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. 
oh, wait a minute. These are people that Christ shed his blood for and bought and purchased through the cross? Absolutely. And yet he describes his swift destruction they bring upon themselves. And all the way through the chapter, much like Jude, he describes these false prophets as lost. They're not saved. Uh, They may at times look like saved. They may look saved, but he says they're like a, a, a pig that goes back to the mud hole. Uh, he's cleaned up on the outside, just like you get the pig all ready for the county fair and wash him all up and put a ribbon around his neck and a little perfume on his back. But when he comes home, he goes right back to the hog pen and he goes right back into the mud because he has a pig's nature, like a dog that returns to its vomit. It's inward and he's not been changed intrinsically. But God loves such people, and he loved a guy like Nebuchadnezzar. And he even loved, I would say, Adolf Hitler. Did he love what Adolf Hitler did? No. But God would have loved Hitler. And when Hitler was growing up as a little boy, um, God would have especially, I think, um, had his affection on that man. But he saw a hardness of heart grow into that man and a rejection of of truth and actually he had the revelation not just found in creation and conscience hitler also had the revelation of the gospel but hitler chose to reject the gospel and he became what he became now god alone knows where people are tracking spiritually and there are some people that we would think oh they, they they're just so far away from god they've expired their last chance And it is true that time runs out on people. God is long suffering. Um, But Jesus clearly made a point in the parable of the sower that there are some people who are given the seed of God's word, but because of their unwillingness to respond to it, the devil is given permission to snatch the seed that they may not believe and be saved. Uh, Jesus made a similar statement in John chapter 12 when he had done miracle after miracle after miracle. And unfortunately, the Jewish people, with all the revelation that he had given, they were still unresponsive. And so he exhorted them. He said, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that the darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he he goes while you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of light. But then the text goes on with some commentary and John adds, but though he had performed so many miracles before them, yet they were not believing in him that the word of Isaiah, the prophet might be fulfilled. And, uh, and then it says in verse 39, for this cause, they could not believe. So in verse 37 of John 12, it says they would not believe. And then in verse 39, it says they could not believe because they would not believe they came to the point where they could not believe. And that's dangerous. That's really dangerous um, when a person reach, reaches that point uh, where, where they cross that uncrossable line where they cannot believe. And God alone knows where that line is. Uh, there's coming a day. Second uh, Thessalonians 2 teaches Uh, the day of the great apostasy. There's always been apostasy, but there's a coming uh, apostasy that's articular in that chapter. It speaks of the apostasy where God will send deluding influences that they might believe what is false. So that day is coming. 
And God alone knows when that comes in someone's personal life. And obviously it had not yet come in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And God could see that as wicked as he was. You know, if we were to sum up the Apostle Paul's life as early church members after Pentecost, we would have concluded that Paul, he had crossed the line that no man can cross back over and that he'll, he'll never, ever, ever come to uh, faith in Christ because he was a persecutor of the church and he hated Christians and had a part in putting them to death and had a part in uh, their uh, imprisonment and everything else. And we would have reasoned that Paul was beyond hope and yet God saved Paul. Maybe the thief on the cross. I mean, think about what took place on that Friday as they hung there for six hours at the beginning of the crucifixion, we're told that both men were like the scribes and the Pharisees and that they blasphemed and cursed and swore at Christ to his face. But before the six hours were over, they had a change of heart and God alone uh, knew that that was going to happen. One man had a change of heart. We would have written him off and said, oh, he's look, he's got the son of God dying next to him. He'll never come to faith. So Nebuchadnezzar, was chased after because he had not crossed that line. And so it gives me hope because again, God alone knows when a man can cross that line. So there's a sense of urgency that we preach with with, and we exhort men today to respond. But we also recognize that some people who um, have not yet responded while they may look beyond hope to us, people like Nebuchadnezzar give us hope because he's genuinely converted. All right, good question. Let's go to the next one. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, Dr. Brovey. Yes. Uh, my name is Trina, and I have two questions for you. Okay. Um, I've been studying the um, future plans for Israel, and my first question is, um, if God hates divorce, why does he issue a divorce decree to Israel in Jeremiah 3.8? And the second question is, um, if God tells believing Jews in the book of Hebrews to turn from the um, sacrificial system, and we know that Christ replaces that system with the new covenant, um, why do we see a return to that system with new temples in the tribulation and the millennium? Great questions. Let me, let me respond to the first one. Uh, yes, indeed. I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. Malachi uh, 2.16. So God is very, very clear. There are some passages, though, both in the Torah and in the case like Jeremiah and in the book of Ezra, uh, where God speaks of divorce. Um, Ezra talks about putting away your foreign wives. Jeremiah is doing the same thing if you read the full context of the command. Why did God tell them to do that? Because they had intermarried into Gentile blood, and they were in essence corrupting the messianic line that God had established for Messiah to come through. And so there was a certain purity that God wanted within the nation for a couple of reasons. Number one is typically to marry a Gentile was to marry an unbeliever. Now a Gentile could become a Jew. And so in the book of Esther, we read of uh, Gentiles becoming Jews. In the New Testament, they're referred to as proselytes. How can a Gentile become a Jew? Well, they can't ethnically in terms of uh, changing their ethnicity. When I became a Christian, I still have Irish and Italian blood in me. That will never change. 
but a person could become a Jew and that he ascribed to the God of Israel. And in that sense, uh, the term Jew is really used in two ways in the Bible. One, not just someone who's a direct descendant of Abraham, but also someone who truly believes in Abraham's God. And of course, one of the problems in Jesus's day is there are people who claimed ethnicity from Abraham. But Jesus said, if you're really children of Abraham, John 8, you do the deeds that Abraham did. As it is, you know, you are of your father, the devil. So ethnicity has never saved anyone, Jew or Gentile alike. Just making someone Jewish didn't make them a believer. But God did not want Judaism corrupted. And so there was a need to marry within the race, within uh, the Jewish race, because to do so was to marry a, uh, a true believer, typically in the Lord God of Israel. There's exceptions to that. Uh, Joseph marries an Egyptian, but I don't believe for a second that he married an unbelieving Egyptian. Moses marries a Canaanite, but I don't believe for a moment he married an unbelieving Canaanite. So God was very concerned with the moral purity of the people of Israel. He did not want them to drift so far. So he allowed it under the old covenant. Uh, why did he allow divorce under the old covenant? Jesus actually tells us in Matthew 19 when he addresses this particular issue of marriage because the Pharisees come and they test him. We read in Matthew 19:3, saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And of course the point of debate was over a verse that Moses had written in Deuteronomy chapter 24 in verse one. Let me just read that verse to you. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And so the point of debate was what was the indecency? And then he goes on and says, if he finds this indecency, he can write her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and send her away. And so there were two schools of thought. There was the school of Hallel that said any reason you can think of. You don't like the way she looks anymore. She burned the meal, whatever you can think of. A very, very liberal school. This school of Shammai uh, argued that, no, it was some sexual offense. And so, of course, Jesus, when he teaches... Uh, the meaning of marriage, he takes it way past the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai and makes marriage so tight that the response of the disciples is totally understandable at that point. And they say, well, if the relationship with a man to his wife is like this, maybe it's better never to get married. So they understood that Jesus took it way beyond. But these guys are testing him and he takes them back to the scriptures. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So God is very clear that God's original intention was for a man to leave and cleave and to become one and that only death was to break that relationship. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together. No man is to divorce. No man is to separate. So only God is to break a relationship. And the only honorable way for that to be done in God's original heart and intention was by death. 
but because of the hardness of man's heart, because that's their question. Well, why did Moses then allow a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away? Because of your hardness of heart. You could take that in many realms. Why did God uh, allow Abraham to have both uh, two wives? And uh, later, of course, he took Keturah. Why did God allow David, a man after his own heart, to have approximately seven wives, depending on how you count it? Uh, because of their hardness of heart. What about Solomon? Now, I don't believe Solomon had a relationship with all of those women. Understand, too, a lot of marriages were done for political reasons to uh, make the kingdom next to you friendly, so you married the king's daughter. But nonetheless, he had a lot of women. Uh, Will we meet Solomon in heaven? Yeah, we will. He's a believer. Uh, So there were things that were allowed under the old covenant that was never in God's plan. In fact, one of the questions that they asked the apostle Paul in first Corinthians seven, when you come to first Corinthians chapter seven in verse one, it's kind of a hinge verse in the book. He said, now concerning the things you wrote me about. And so beginning in chapter seven, all the way through the end of the book, he begins to tick off question after question after question that they had asked him about. One of the questions they wrote him about was concerning being married to an unbeliever. And there was a lot of mixed marriages in that day because the gospel came to Corinth. Paul brought the gospel there. He laid the foundation for the church there through the preaching of the gospel. The church was established through his ministry and some women, some men became believers and their spouses did not. And they wanted to know, should they end the marriage? You know, and they were probably, you know, reading passages like Ezra. In or Jeremiah and other passages, you, you know, should, should we break off this mixed marriage? And Paul says, no, um, it's uh, admirable for you to live with that person because of the godly influence you can have, not just on the spouse, but also on the children as well. So the Old Testament needs to be read in light of the New Testament. But Jesus takes us all the way back to the foundation. So he makes it very, very clear what the original intention of God was. Um, your other question, uh, she had, Rick, uh, there was two parts to it. Um, yeah, I didn't catch it all. Are you still there? It, it was, if you got rid of, uh, something, why did God later restore it as indicated in the revelation? Are you still there listener? Yes, I'm here. What's your second part? Actually. So the first question though, was still about in Jeremiah three, eight specifically. Did, okay. Did God, does God divorce Israel? Uh, well, he not? does just like in the book of Hosea. Yes, okay. he does. So have you read Hosea? Uh, not recently. That would be a great book to read. So so here's what God does in Hosea, and it's a beautiful illustration. Um, God has the prophet marry a woman whom he knows is going to go south on her. I don't believe for a second he married her as a prostitute. That's ridiculous. That's silly. It's not exegetically sound. But he marries a woman, and God tells him in advance, this woman whom you're going to marry is going to end up being unfaithful to you. But then I want you to divorce her. And then after you divorce her, I want you to remarry her. And why does he do that? Well, he does that as an illustration of what was going on amongst the people of Israel in Hosea's day. They had been adulterous towards God. Uh, Is not friendship with the world adultery towards God, James writes in the New Testament. So God uses the term adultery, not just literally, but also metaphorically that when a person in their heart goes after other things 
and God takes second place, they are committing spiritual adultery. And of course, Israel was covered over in idolatry and other wicked things. And so God, in essence, divorces them, but God makes it clear because he's loved Israel with an everlasting love that he's going to marry her back. And so the image of God being married to Israel and Israel being the bride is repeated throughout the Old Testament. And it comes into the New Testament as well in terms of Christ's relationship with his church. But to go to a text like Jeremiah 3 or the book of Hosea, which is really an, an amplification of what you read here in Jeremiah, the whole book is, and to say, well, this is an endorsement for divorce. And I heard a, a, a man teach this one day. And again, there are many novices who are in the pulpits who, in Peter's words, distort the scriptures to their own destruction. And unfortunately, he was using this as a justification for divorce. Well, if God did it, then why can't I? And of course he had been divorced and he was trying to give a biblical justification for what he had done. No, he's, uh, he's making it really, really clear that uh, God hates divorce and in God, when he divorces her, he, he does it, you know, to picture the fact that he is so displeased with the adultery of Israel, but God marries her back. And so, of course, Jeremiah preaches uh, during a time in Jeremiah 3, he's referring to God, you know, sending Israel away via the Assyrians. And so we read here, uh, and I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, what adulteries? She was married to other gods, a spiritual adultery. I'd sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. So what is he saying? I mean, how did he divorce Israel, so to speak? Well, he divorced Israel. Uh, The 10 northern tribes, of course, is a reference here to Israel. The kingdom split at some point. And so you had 10 northern tribes called Israel. And you had two southern tribes named after the, uh, the larger of the two, Judah. You had Judah and Benjamin. And so God warned Uh, Israel, Isaiah, the prophet kept saying to Israel, the 10 Northern tribes, you better get right or God's going to deal with you. You better get repent or God's going to judge you. And they didn't listen. They ignored God's prophets. And so God sent the Assyrians in 722 BC. And in essence, he wrote her a certificate of divorce. He got rid of her as a bride. Um, Did he stop loving Israel? No, he loved Israel. Uh, Jeremiah, the prophet also says with an everlasting love. But he judged her and put her away just like a man would put away a woman. And then he says, your sister, Judah, you think she would have learned and seen that what God said he meant, but she didn't repent either. And so then God uses the Babylonians and he, in essence, divorces her. So when you look at a passage like this or in Hosea, it's not contradicting what Moses wrote because of the hardness of heart. It's not contradicting, contradicting the, the metaphorical divorce that Jeremiah and Hosea speak of uh, to illustrate God's displeasure towards the adulterous, idolatrous nature of his people. And, and, and Jesus makes that clear because he, he makes it crystal clear what God's intention is from the beginning. So Israel should have been a model of God's love. Uh, Marriages should have reflect that just like the church today. A marriage is to reflect Christ's love for the church. 
And unfortunately, very often they do not. But that does not mean that God does not have his standard. Now, what was the second part of your question? Okay, so this, the second question is, um, right, so we know that the temple sacrificial system um, has been done oh, away yes, with. Oh, yes, yes, okay, um, right. So, and then in the book of Ezekiel, uh, we find uh, the temple being rebuilt. Isaiah also uh, mentions this. And in Ezekiel, we find the people of God practicing um, temple worship, so to speak, during the time of the millennial kingdom of Messiah. This is not in heaven. This is during the millennium. So there's a number of different um, temples that were built at different times. People count them differently. Of course, there was the tabernacle, which was kind of a portable temple. And then David said one day, you know, I'm living in a beautiful house and God lives in a tent. I'd like to build God a more permanent house, but God doesn't allow David to do it, though he provides all the material. But the first temple is built through Solomon. We call it the Solomonic temple. That temple is destroyed uh, during this time that Jeremiah the prophet mentions when Babylon comes down and Nebuchadnezzar ultimately demolishes the place. And so you have some prophets and some men like Nehemiah who wants to rebuild the wall so that Ezra, uh, you know, can be concerned with the rebuilding of the temple and so forth. And, and the second temple is built. Some would call that second temple, the Zerubbabel temple is rebuilt. Uh, some would call even a third temple, the Herodian temple, but most would say, no, the Herodian temple was just the original temple, but really amplified in, I uh, had a facelift, so to speak, by Herod the king. That temple, of course, was destroyed in 70 AD, totally demolished, just as Jesus prophesied. If you go to Israel today, the top of the Temple Mount is is naked. Why? Because it was destroyed. And of course, uh, history records, Josephus tells us that when uh, Titus Vespucian came in, and he uh, burned the place, all the gold in the temple melted and you know, was formed between the rocks and they literally pried the rocks apart to get the gold. There was so much gold in that place and not one stone stood upon the next. When when people, sometimes I go to Israel and people are a little confused. And by the way, if someone's listening and interested in going to Israel, by God's grace, we're going in uh, 2016 and someone can go to searchthescriptures.org and get all the information on that. Um, but uh, they, they go to Israel and they see this big wall, what we call the Western Wall. They used to call it the Wailing Wall because they couldn't get to that side of Jerusalem. But the 67 War changed all that. So we call it the Western Wall. It's the Western Wall of the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount was the platform upon which the temple at the top was built. So uh, that temple was destroyed. Another temple is going to be built. We call it the Tribulation Temple. How do we know that? Because Daniel tells us in Daniel 9 that in the middle of the tribulation, it will be defiled. Uh, Paul elaborates on it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But then there's another temple called the Millennial Temple that's going to be built. And that would be our fourth temple. Some would call it the fifth. And the fourth temple will be erected during the time of the Millennial Kingdom. And it will be an illustration of the goodness and the greatness of God and God's people are going to go in. And much like uh, the Lord's Supper is looking back today at the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, people are going to go into the temple and they're going to offer animal sacrifices and go into, um, you know, the different portions of the temple and watch how the whole thing unfolds. Why? As an illustration of what Jesus Christ did for us. Uh, The tabernacle 
is a picture of what the temple was. And so I tell people, if you really want to understand what took place in the temple, go back and read the Torah and what God says in the tabernacle. In every stitch of the tabernacle, every piece of equipment of the tabernacle, all prefigured uh, what Jesus Christ was going to do. And it's absolutely mind-blowing to study the tabernacle, even the way the, uh, even the position in which all the different tribes would uh, arrange themselves around the tabernacle and how God dictated they should camp and the numbers and the percentages and the shapes they formed. It's absolutely astounding. And we are going to be uh, absolutely blown away during the time of the millennial kingdom. Every time we go into that millennial temple And we are involved not to make any kind of a sacrifice in order to expiate sin. Because as you mentioned, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. But it will be done in order to remember what Messiah has done before we go into the final eternal state. The new heaven and the new earth that are created at the end of the millennium. Anyway, those are great questions, thoughtful. Let's go to the next one. I think maybe we've got time for one more. Sure. Last week, we had a caller who says a grandchild has asked the great-grandparents to start contributing to their newborn son, their great-grandsons, that would be, a college fund. The great-grandparents are not sure they want to do this, but would like your opinion as to whether this is what Scripture teaches and whether, in fact, they should start contributing, especially in this age of excellent homeschooling that's available, so that this child may not even attend a college. What should they do? Well, um, obviously, it's a kind of a personal matter. I, I, I Personally, I think it, maybe it's, it would be a little bit forward to go to a grandparent or a great-grandparent and say, hey, why don't you start putting money in my child's college fund? Um, I, personally, I don't like that spirit uh, that that question would, would come from. Now, if the uh, grandparents or the great-grandparents, and the Bible talks about leaving uh, inheritance to your children's children, and if they decide they want to leave some portion and they want to specify how that money should be used, you know, that might be a good thing to do. You might want to specify that it will be used for a Christian college, but not necessarily. You know, you might want to specify it just for, for college. Now, can people be homeschooled through college? Yes, but... I would just typically say that, you know, more and more today in our culture to function, you have to have a college degree unless you have a particular skill like a mason or an electrician or a plumber, or unless you're inheriting some family business for the most part today to have just a high school degree is to limit yourself to minimum wage jobs, which is very, very challenging. It wasn't true 40 years ago. When I graduated from high school, there was 509 people in my graduating class, and only about 30, 40% went on to the university. Um, Still back then, a majority of the students would just um, graduate from high school, either go to technical school or uh, go into the military or something. Now it's just the opposite. So today, a, a college degree is basically what a high school degree was. And not to have one is to really limit maybe some of your possibilities and and um, it creates more challenge in trying to provide for a family. Anyway, we're out of time. I wish we could spend more time on that. If I didn't answer it fully, feel free to call back next time. Lord willing, we'll be here to answer your questions. Uh, if you don't have a church home, we invite you to uh, consider Community Bible Church meeting in Bluffton and Hilton Head at the Bridge Center and here at 638 Paris Island Gateway in Beaufort. 
Uh, we're also planning a new church in the Rinkin Pool area. Details to come very, very soon for some of our listeners. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. <laughs>